0: the optimal life
1: so you have quite a story and you've gone through so many different things based on the little I know about you but you've gone through quite a bit in your life so it ultimately led you to writing this book called blooming Um, take us back and uh, what was the main purpose for you ultimately writing this book
0: Well, so I had written short stories over the years. And actually back in 2001, when the Internet bubble burst, I took a little time off to take a stab at writing a book. And I just couldn't, you know, I never I was like, who would care about my stories? I'm just ordinary. These aren't anything special.
1: You know, all that negative
0: self-talk. But when COVID hit, I felt compelled to write this book. I suddenly realized, you know, I'd had this change in my life where now I was doing executive search. I'm out there. I'm talking to people just on a regular basis. I'm just hearing from people just pain, and and just feeling lost, lack of purpose, not knowing where they're going. All the heavy drinking. The we all saw the pictures of people's uh, recycling bins full of bottles of wine and liquor and whatnot. And my heart just went out to people because when COVID hit, I was like. Uh, I've been through so so much shit already. I know I got this. I was like, historically, when these events happen, this is an opportunity for for growth and innovation. And so my mindset went there. I went to, like, how can I keep my family safe? What steps do I need to take to do that? And then where's the opportunity for innovation and growth? And I said to myself during lockdown, what am I going to get out of this? let's look at the opportunity here. I suddenly have free time. I'm going to write that book that I always wanted to write a and B I'm going to get in the best shape of my life. So I set two goals for myself and, but the book, it really, I have to say was a God thing. It's like, I wrote it in three months. It just flowed, but it was about me giving a gift to all the people out there who were hurting. I had some very specific people in mind who I was talking to through work and, I thought, how can I help these people? And I realized that if I could share with them how I had gotten through so much shit and repurposed it and used it to uh, advance me in life and how learning to change your mindset, which is critical for me, um, is mindset is a muscle, and once you start to change that mindset and start for start to look for opportunity in adversity, it just happens naturally. Every time you have you have a flat tire on the road, you can be mad, or you can say, "Wait, I've got half an hour. I have to sit here. I can call the friend who I haven't talked to, and I never have time to call." Mm. It's a Finding it's, it's seriously, it's a mindset thing. It's a muscle. You just suddenly you're like, okay, where's the opportunity? This is this is horrible. This sucks. I'm not. I'm not about toxic positivity. I'm like, you own it. This sucks. But what am I going to do? Like, w- at first, I'm going to own that this sucks. That's important. Feel, express your feelings. Okay, I'm angry. I'm hurt. It's so important. If you suppress that stuff, it's so harmful. But always in the back of your mind, have that thought okay I know this sucks right now but something good will come from this if I choose to if I choose to find that as part of that's you choosing to look for it and find it if you choose to say I'm a victim and this sucks you're going to wallow there the rest of your life but it's about shifting your mindset and from being a victim to a survivor um
1: so you think based upon your history the pandemic for you was like okay here's another opportunity because I've lived through so many negative experiences that I've had to find a silver lining and I've had to adjust and pivot and reinvent. Um, This is just yet another one of those opportunities. It's almost as if your past, which we're going to get into the detail, it's almost as if that really set the stage and prepared you for this pandemic.
0: Absolutely. It's I was telling a friend recently. um, So I'm a huge fan of Ryan Holiday. I I love his book, The Obstacle is the Way. He's just, I think he's brilliant. I actually have gotten to the point when I run into an obstacle, I get excited.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I'm like, okay, wait, finally, like a challenge. How do we, how do we get around this obstacle? What positive change or opportunity am I going to uncover because this is in my way? And so it's a shift from dread and fear to excitement. So I've come a long way. I mean, and it's, it's honestly, I mean, I'm 54 now. It's a long journey. I don't want people to think, well, gosh, why am I not thinking that way yet? I mean, you have to know the whole story about how I got here. But I do encourage people to really, um, you know, uh, well, let me give you a little story. I think this is really indicative about life and the choices we make. Um, One of my favorite stories in the book is about going to Las Vegas with a girlfriend. And we uh, it was right after the Bellagio was built, and we wanted to watch the fountains. So we went to this restaurant called Olives, and we had a reservation out on the patio. And it was particularly windy that night, and (laughs) the wind caught the fountains just right. And this had never happened before a huge gust of wind hits just at the right time. And I, we just finished dinner. I'd gotten up from the table and it was like a tidal wave. I was soaked from head to toe <laughs> and we had spent, you know, girls, you know, I was pretty young men, you know, spent all this time getting glammed up. And my girlfriend looked at me like, Oh God, is this going to ruin our night? A and B it's, if, if we do get going, how long is it going to take her to get ready? And in that space, split second I knew I had a choice is this going to ruin our evening or as what I chose to do is I said what are the odds of someone getting hit by a fountain I said wow I go I've been blessed by the holy water we're gonna win tonight I go come on let's go ran upstairs blew dry my hair changed my clothes we were out the door so fast and that's one of our favorite stories but the point is in that moment I had a choice and that split second decision determined the outcome of our evening
1: yes most most women would have uh, been ruined they would have gone back complained take, the whole night's ruined and you looked at it as like hey this is uh, maybe a sign from, from up above we, we better go throw the dice
0: yeah seriously you know? that's how I looked at it yeah
1: yeah, it's yeah. interesting. And, and and again like you say that could be translated to anything and everything in life. So
0: Absolutely.
1: Let's get into some of the detail because we've teased it a little bit and I want to hear I want to hear about specific things that have that with some of these things that you've gone through if you would give the detail as much as you're willing to share and how you've overcome it. So let's start back. You've you're you're a sexual assault survivor. Take us back to the first time that happened, and then if there were repeat occasions, what was going on?
0: So, um, I refer to it as rape in the book because I was raped, and I'm a little sensitive to the fact that so many people, I mean, obviously, the Me Too movement has been incredibly important, but it's almost to the point that we hear about sexual assault so much, people think, oh, it's just another sexual assault survivor. I get pretty graphic in the book on purpose, because I want people to understand what it's like to be raped, and I take people through that journey. Um,
1: take us, take us through it. What, what, <laughs> what, what, hap- what, ha- what happened?
0: What happened? Yes. So, um, I went off to college at Washington State University. I was in a sorority. I was a out there, and we had. Um, at Washington State, the homecoming is incredibly important. They have these homecoming games where fraternities and sororities pair up and they build uh, lawn displays. They have um, Olympic style games. They have a series of parties all leading up to the big football game. So it's a huge week long event. And that year we had teamed up with the Sigma News and I went over to the Sigma new house with about four other tried to build lawn displays, and after a couple of hours of doing that work, uh, we were invited inside to have a beer, and the keg was upstairs, and so I was with four other girls, um, and uh, one of the Sigma News handed me a cup of beer and uh, pulled me into his room, and the next thing I remember is the thunderous noise of his door being kicked in, which kind of woke me up and I realized I was naked on the floor that he was inside me and there was a whole crew of guys jostling to see in the room and like making cat calls and whatnot and so I turned my head to avoid being seen I like kind of came to and um and then he bolted the door and proceeded on and I I walked through you know, some details about all that happened. Um, one of the things that after I went back to my sorority house the next morning, I confided in a sorority sister about what happened to me. And she said, first of all, she said, are you sure? Like, are you sure? Like, uh, you didn't want to just have sex with him? And I'm like trying, you know, walking her through what happened. Like, no, this was rape. Um, and then she says well just be really careful how you handle it because there had been a girl um another girl at washington state who had been gang raped the year before and she got kicked out of her sorority because they called her they labeled her slut but she had been raped and she actually um you know went to prosecute this group of guys and instead she got kicked out of the sorority and so she said just be really careful and I was in such a state in my life where I just was desperate to fit in. I was more concerned with you know, what would happen to me, whether I would get kicked out of my sorority if I said anything. So I went to the student health center and the doctor asked me, like looking at what, you know, my the damage that had been done, he asked me if there was something I needed to tell him. And um, I, I told him it was just rough sex. And my major concern, though, was pregnancy because I grew up in this family where my mother was the executive director of the Crisis Pregnancy Center, which is a very pro-life group, and had been forced to watch videos of abortions at home. Um, and my parents were just huge fundamentalist Christians, and I, I just didn't even want to have to confront the issue of abortion because I was just, I you know. uh, I just thought I would go to hell so I, I actually I asked the the doctor I luckily so luckily again this is a god thing I'd seen Donahue and he had this Donahue show where he was talking about the morning after pill which was something that was revolutionary and so this was 1986 the morning after pill actually wasn't wasn't approved till 2001 so, this was like the first discussion about it and I just happened to catch it. So, I asked the doctor, I said, "Do you know if you heard about this? Do you know what it is?" He says, "Well, we don't have it because it hasn't been FDA approved, but um, it's essentially like taking eight birth controls at eight, eight birth control pills at once." And so he gave me eight birth control pills. Wow.
1: Wow.
0: I know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> So and let me just stop let me everywhere. just let me just anyway. let me just stop here Carrie and try to unpack a little bit of that because uh that's I'm so sorry to hear that. So the the you were handed a drink. Had you been drinking it or was the drink spiked? Is that why you don't remember what happened?
0: Well, I, I honestly can't tell you.
1: You don't know. I mean, you don't I know
0: for I was sure. I we weren't drinking. Right. I was totally sober. Um we came in from and I was handed a beer and I I'm assuming. I mean, obviously, I drank some of it, so right. I'm assuming maybe he put something in it.
1: Yeah, because um, one beer is one beer is not enough to, to knock you blacked out. I mean, no.
0: The, first, the next thing I remember is being on the floor when yeah. the door gets kicked in. So,
1: so in the days that preceded that, and you're dealing with uh, an array of emotions. I mean, scared, angry, upset, fearful. Uh, you know, all these negative feelings. You're dealing with well, what if I'm pregnant, and then how am I going to handle this? Um, what what were some of the feelings that you had? Like, how did you start like shaking off some of that negative feelings so that this ultimately, so that you wouldn't let this define you? Because some people could just crumble from that point on for the rest of their lives. Were you cognizant of hey, this is I need to handle this right now, or like, what's what's the psyche that's happening at that point right. in your life? Yeah.
0: Well, I knew one thing is that i I, ne- I never wanted to be a victim. I knew that for sure about myself. That was just, you know, I'd been around people who were a victim of everything, and that just wasn't who I was. Mm. And so I was like, I didn't want this rape to define me. But unfortunately, um, you know, went home. I told my mother, and she, her response is jaw dropping. Uh, she said, I'm so disappointed in you. We had hoped that you would remain a virgin until you were married Mm. and you must never speak of this ever again. And you must never tell your father. So I did not process my emotions. I did not talk about it for six years. And then in law school, I, uh, had a situation where it just kind of came to the forefront. and I sat down at my computer and I wrote the very first story I'd ever written, which was about the rape. Which is part of why I put it in the front of the book. Um,
1: but mm. your mom, your mom blamed you for the rape. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever? Do you guys? Is, is your mother still around?
0: No, she's not.
1: Did she know that what that moment? how that impacted you? Did you ever talk to her about it? No. Mm. Do you wish that you could have?
0: Um, my mom was, uh, my mom had a difficult life. Uh, she didn't have the capacity to be there for me. And I mean, yeah, it would have been great if I had a mom that was emotionally available who I could have talked to about, about it with. But, um, she was under the there's so much to unpack here but like my, my father is a malignant narcissist and my mother had to do everything for him and so she just was so much um she just didn't have the emotional capacity to deal with it yeah, so yeah yeah
1: it was easier to just say how dare you do that how dare you put yourself into that situation? That's what so many people, that's that's what I think you're t- saying is like, that's a problem, is that so many victims are all, all a lot of times blamed for being in the wrong place at the wrong time or putting themselves there.
0: Oh, 100%. Well, actually, so one of the, I, I include this story um, in the chapter about the rape, about a guy I dated, um, you know, probably 20 years later. And he was 12 years younger than me. And so we had a situation, um, you know, we were romantically involved and something came up. And so I felt like it was important to share the fact that I'd been raped just to kind of give him a better understanding um, of, you know, why I responded the way that I did. And so I told him about it. And his response to me was, well, I have zero sympathy for you. Everybody knows about date rape. You should have known better. Jeez yeah and I said well first of all um, I said we didn't have internet we didn't even have personal computers (laughs) I said we didn't even have Oprah I mean so like these things were not discussed I go and this wasn't a date this was a full on rape and I'm not diminishing people who are date raped because that's equally as horrible but
1: yeah it's uh it's it's terrible i mean it's i feel i feel terrible we for you we
0: didn't have oprah
1: <laughs> yeah i feel terrible for you
0: so you're so right um of course i ended that relationship but
1: yeah of course of course
0: people just you're right people, a lot of people do ask you know well what were you doing well i mean even if you said you, you were asking about the number of fears i mean i know you where you're going with that but it, it shouldn't matter
1: right no, it shouldn't matter at all. Of course, of course, it, does. right. it doesn't matter. But I'm just curious: as if it was ten beers, maybe you were? I'm just I, the fact that, the reason I was asking that is because you have to assume that he placed something that he shouldn't have in that drink,
0: yes, or else you I wouldn't have did. blacked
1: out. Yeah. I mean, there's just no, there's no way. So, uh, so it took you some time. Did did this did this uh, rape? did this have a, an impact on you with your sexual experiences as you were continuing on in your 20s and 30s?
0: It did, yeah, it really did. So because it was, I mean, so early in my sexual life, um, it the I went from feeling like I was a valued human being to that I was only um, there for sex. Uh, as I, I like to say... Um, I became the messenger for the message that he had sent me. And it's it's interesting. I learned later on through therapy that it's very common for rape victims to become promiscuous.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's
0: what I did. I became promiscuous. I could not... I would go on a date or two. I did not have a boyfriend all through college. I never had a boyfriend. Um, and when I got to law school, when I finally told my story six years later, I mean, he was... friend who who, was a friend with benefits thing but because he was a friend first and so this went on longer than some of the other situations I'd been in uh, I felt more vulnerable and didn't know how to handle it and that's why but because he was a friend I also felt comfortable enough to share the story with him and he was the first person who responded responded with compassion and you know (laughs) When that he, began the healing process for me.
1: Um, when, when were you were you interested in him? Like, did there were there feelings that were developing for this guy because of that?
0: There were initially, yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, yeah. So it's, it's interesting. You say that you became more promiscuous, and you said that that's what a lot of women do. After a, yeah. a, a terrible situation like that, so you're basically saying that that you were just you were dating around, sleeping around. It, it's almost like you were like, what is the psych- psychology behind it? Is it that you don't you don't want to let this thing define you so much that you're going to go out and just even have more sex? I mean, I, what what no, is it?
0: It's because when you push trauma down and you don't deal with it, you relive the trauma, you repeat the trauma. You're attracted to people who make you repeat the trauma. You have to, first of all, you asked about my feelings about it. I did wasn't allowed to have any feelings about it. I wasn't allowed to talk about it. So I never processed my anger, my rage, my hurt, my pain. I never processed any of that until six years later when I just started. And really it took me probably 20 years when I finally had a year where I spent every day on the couch with a therapist doing psychoanalysis, unpacking all, like all you I mean, a lot of the stuff that happened to me, but um, realizing, and also for women, we're, we're told we're not allowed, you know, being mad is not okay for women. And you, you, in order to overcome trauma, you have to get to rage, get to rage and grieve the damage that's been done and move through it and you have to go through all those stages before you can stop reliving the trauma.
1: Oh, that's interesting. And You're saying get yeah. to, get to re- become so so upset and so angry with what has happened to you and accept it instead of pushing it down.
0: At, right. Pushing it down is the absolute worst thing you can do. Hmm. And for women that's particularly hard because we're we're told it's not okay to get angry. But we need to, just to process it and get to the other side of it. So you have to go through that period of rage to, as I like to say, you go through rage to get to forgiveness.
1: So let me ask you, Carrie, when you, you said you sat down for a year with a psychologist, was that, you said that was 20 years later?
0: Yeah, it was, it was uh, I mean, I don't know that exact number, but it was... Um,
1: it was roughly 20 years later. So my question is, is, is yeah. you were, were you were married once or twice in between in that 20 year span?
0: It, I was on the couch with a therapist on my second marriage.
1: Okay. So you had already gone through your first marriage, and then you were on the couch with your therapist with your second marriage. Was yeah. Was your second marriage experiencing problems at that point?
0: Uh, it, I wasn't there because of problems with that marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, that wasn't why I initially. It was really, it had a lot more to do with my father and those issues and dealing with past trauma.
1: Do you so you've 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 had two divorces and I'm wondering do you attribute that to the was the rape did that have any impact on your marriages and uh, obviously it was more than just the rape because I could hear what what you felt about your parents and especially your mom so what do you attribute the uh, the issues to in your marriage well it's uh it's
0: a little more complicated than that so um in my family, um, my parents had paid for my brother and sister's college and asked me to go in state. Um, well, they went to my brother, went to Stanford, my sister went to USC, and she went to a very elite private boarding school, and they paid for all of that. And they had me going to public high school and asked me to stay in state and go to Washington State University. So when my brother graduated from Stanford, they said, Okay, um, you can go wherever you want now. And so I transferred. To the University of Texas and then when I graduated from there they felt bad because they had paid for so much for my brother and sister and they're like okay well you can go to law school wherever you want we'll pay for it and so I enrolled at Tulane they totally supported that and then shortly after I got there they said well we changed our mind we're not we're not going to pay for it and so I was completely screwed as far as student loans um and Really left scrambling, and so I really I experienced some abandonment with with that experience. Late, uh, it it got progressively worse where I was really struggling financially because I couldn't get certain student loans because my parents were claiming me on their income tax. Um, I didn't, you know I didn't qualify for grants or anything, so I was barely um, able to even have money for food. Um, so. I, when I came back from my summer, my second summer clerking in Atlanta, I met my first husband who was a bar manager on Bourbon Street, (laughs) which is like, you never would have put me with him. Um, He pursued me relentlessly and he kept inviting me to dinner and I was so hungry and I was in New Orleans. They have these great restaurants. I was like, okay, you know, fill my belly. He literally got to my heart through my stomach. (laughs) Uh, and he surprised me by proposing and I thought there's no way my father will prove this my father is a snob a you know, fundamentalist Christian um, there's just no way and he, my uh, first husband Bo went to meet my father and he said um, you had me so worried You know, I met him and he said oh she's your problem now he said he did everything but hand me your birth certificate and so all of a sudden I was like uh now what do I do because I really didn't intend on marrying this guy but I I felt completely abandoned by my family and then I got hospitalized my third my, my third year of law school my last semester I had this very bizarre condition I had fluid coming out of my ear and I didn't know if it was spinal fluid or if it was ear infection or what it was and um I had a procedure that went wrong and I ended up in the hospital for five days getting shot up with Demerol because of pain and I asked Bo to call my father um, since he's a doctor and ask him to talk to the doctors and try to figure out what was going on with me and so Bo called my father and he hands me the phone says your dad wants to talk to you and I press the phone to my good ear and he says your mother and I've been talking and we just want to let you know we're not paying for this Oh. And so, <laughs> uh, yeah, no visit, no card, no flowers, no get well soon. Just we're not paying for this. Mm-hmm. So still drugged up on Demerol. Um, Bo took me to the Justice of the Peace. I literally don't even remember it, and we got married.
1: You don't remember oh. it. You, you were you no. were you were not conscious
0: no yeah I was still I mean i have been being shot up with drugs for five days and um so but I mean I knew after like okay we're married then I was like okay well I'm married um now what do I do and uh my parents had agreed to pay for the wedding so I was like well we're gonna make a pay we're gonna have a real ceremony because after that comment I was you know um but anyway the bottom line with him was I never should have married him in the first place it was just I, I was dealing with abandonment issues with my father. Um, he was there. He cared. He was, you know, wanting to feed me, whatever. But there, we were so opposite, uh, obviously, you know, career-wise, um, ethics-wise. There's a story later in the book about, you know, he was very racist, and which is the opposite of me. Um, and so we just... It's- it didn't last long and it probably
1: lasted longer than it should have so it's it's ironic that in these two instances one being the rape and the other being your first marriage your wedding uh both of the instances you were unconscious in oh
0: that's
1: interesting and obviously in a different way but neither of them were you knowing what was really going on
0: yeah
1: so uh, I'm wondering if do you attribute the well obviously you weren't supposed to be married the first time, and I don't know about the second time and again, we could spend if you and I had three hours i would we would really be going into a lot of detail in this yeah uh but but the the second divorce i mean do you attribute any of the uh it sounds like your your family was pretty good at abandoning abandoning you, and I'm sure that this probably took place going back to your childhood maybe you don't even realize all the situations but just hearing the few examples you've given especially with your mom blaming you for the rape and then you know your parents pulling the rug out from under you with with the financial stuff and leaving debt leaving you piled with debt and etc. Yeah. I'm wondering if those abandonment issues um do you think have maybe played a part in your adult life relationships?
0: Oh, absolutely. 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they absolutely have. And those, those issues actually were the trigger for the second divorce. Um, I, I will say, you know, I chose much better the second time. He's a, he's a really good guy. We had a lot of bad things that happened to us during, or really more happened to him uh, during our marriage that you know, he was the child of a, a horrible alcoholic. And I liked uh, jokingly, um, I said, there's a lot of similarity between children's of alcoholics and children of, of religious zealots, we have, we have a lot of similarities in common. <laughs> um, so, I think that uh, he, he, he was safe for me, uh, in a lot of ways. And You know, we had very similar morals in a way. He's been a great co-parent. We were 100% on the same page. But there were a lot of things that happened that really made our marriage challenging, that it was really more outside forces that he didn't have the emotional wherewithal to deal with. And um, I fell into being like my mother doing everything as I like to say it's like the matrix I like shape shift my body around (laughs) whatever it takes to make somebody happy and so I lost myself very much like my mother lost herself with my father trying to keep this guy happy and um, that's not a recipe for success so you know I'm single now. I've been divorced. I got divorced in 2009. And for me, part of my journey has been developing my own separate identity, knowing who I am, what my wants and needs are, and you know, not being so you know, not willing to be so flexible to change my identity for someone else. Yeah. So that's been an yeah. important journey for me.
1: Yeah, that's extremely important. And it's so easy to lose yourself when you're in a relationship with somebody if it's not two ways especially and you're trying to always make somebody else happy that's that happens to so many different people. I'm curious um, about this religious mind what, what What was that about.
0: <laughs> I just thought that was such a perfect term for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so my father found religion when we we moved from the East Coast to the west coast and I was about four and he found religion and he is I mean he's a brilliant man and so religion in the in the hands of a man like that who's also a malignant narcissist it's a dangerous thing. He I, read, I mean was reading the Bible every day reading every book about the Bible and he would twist scripture, to get you to do things. And uh, like one of his favorite scriptures is one of the 10 commandments, honor your mother and father, and if you do, you'll have a long life. Well, what he said to us, and he actually wrote me this letter when I was uh, during my first marriage, he wrote this letter to all three children, which I refer to as the demand letter. And he starts by quoting that scripture about honor your mother and father, and he said, it's the only commandment that comes with a promise, the promise of long life. And he said, similarly, it also comes with a curse if you don't follow it. So, and then he listed all of his demands that he wanted each of us kids to figure out who was going to have them for Thanksgiving and Christmas. And that he had certain expectations. He wanted to talk to us every Sunday night, blah, 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 blah. And if we didn't do these things, we were cursed. Mm. And I called my brother and sister. I said, have you opened that letter yet? And they're like, no. I said, burn it don't read it.
1: So he used scripture and Bible and religion to further his cause and to, he would use it in a way so, so extreme that if you didn't follow it, you were going to be having a date with the devil, basically.
0: A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, the reason I spent that year on the couch with the therapist is because, and the thing is, is, it's constant with him. Constant. He doesn't, he doesn't recognize boundaries. He's always intruding, getting in your stuff about everything. And it gets in your head to the point I had this tape in my head where anything that happened, I would hear him. And I literally needed to spend that year walking through all of this and learning new self-talk. I mean, I, you know, my husband's would say, if I talked to him on the phone, I would get off the phone, I would do something self-harming, whether it was picking up my face or, you know, eating a bag of chips, or they noticed there was a direct correlation that between me speaking with him and me doing something that was harmful to myself. Wow. Yeah. And so I realized that and eventually I realized I couldn't have him in my life at all. And that's when I really saw change in my life is when I cut him out completely. Um but I
1: how did you? How to, did you cut? Had, how, how did you? How did you cut your father out? What, what was that moment?
0: So um, my mother uh, passed away from dementia, and um, she was in assisted living for a number of years. And when she finally passed away, um, I cut him off. But the reason, the thing, the really the trigger for that, and this is another really dramatic story, was after she was put in assisted living, he said, "You know, would you invite me out for Christmas?" Sucker, I agreed. Uh, So I invited him out to spend Christmas with me and my boys. I was divorced, so I was just me and my boys, and then he was there. And so this was Christmas of twenty eleven, I think. Yeah, and um, and uh, you know, my boys were playing, and he was sitting on the couch reading a book. And so I took the moment to run upstairs and take a shower. And all of a sudden, I heard screams and crying and one of my boys running up the stairs and slamming his door and I was like, What the hell's going on? So I got mid shower, I got out and I came running out and I was like, What is going on here? And I went and found my son in his bunk bed. I said, Did you get a fight with your brother? And he's like, No, grandpa. I'm like, wait a second, what happened? And he said, Grandpa choked me. Ugh. So I went downstairs and I
1: How old's your son? Th- How old was your son at this point?
0: Um I think he was about ten.
1: Oh gosh! Okay.
0: And uh, so I ran downstairs and I asked um, his younger brother. Oh, I asked first. I asked my dad, and I'm like, and he, he's like, "Yeah, well, they were and They need you need to discipline him more." And then I turned to my younger son, who was hiding under the under a desk. I said, "What happened?" And he goes, "Grandpa choked Tommy." And I turned to my father and I said, because uh, it was Christmas Day. This was Christmas Day. Mm. And I said, um, you will never see your grandchildren ever again. That's it. And so that relationship terminated with them that day. And um,
1: you, you, you kicked him out of the house right then and there?
0: Well, it was Christmas Day, so I yeah. let him fly out the next morning because there really wasn't much I could do about that. Right. But. That was the end of their relationship. They've never seen him since. But I stayed in contact with him for another year. My mom passed away. Uh, Christmas, it was it I guess it was technically the 26th, but it was basically Christmas Day of uh, 2012. So a year later. And I, I stayed in contact with him um, until after her funeral.
1: I got to tell you, I mean, I don't know much about him, but it sounds like in a weird way that him choking your son was probably the best thing that ever happened to you
0: i call it a christmas gift i say in the book it was a christmas gift
1: yeah yeah because but for that event he may still be in your life and you may still be picking at your face
0: yeah hundred percent yeah
1: a few more things a couple more things here family rejection body dysmorphia what was this about body dysmorphia
0: so that all started with um, when I was about eight years old. I asked my dad, um, as every little girl does, they look to their father for to learn if you know how they're valued as a woman. And I asked him if I was pretty, and he kind of looked me up and down and scrunched up his face and said, "Yeah, no, you're not pretty. Um, I don't want you to be disappointed in life and have false expectations. But now your sister, she's beautiful." Oh, jeez. Yeah so it starts with that and that's there's a whole chapter in there about comparison and all that but also um I was blessed with having a nice size booty which I grew up in the the Cheryl Teague's Twiggy um the Twiggy era <laughs> and it was not that it was not the body du jour right so and uh, I mean, I, I'm very graphic about this stuff because I know people can relate, but you know, we couldn't. We didn't have songs back then. They were only for strippers, they weren't mainstream yet. So, you know, I constantly was walking around with these underwear, the panty lines and people made fun of me for it. And it just was miserable about, you know, my body. I had a horrible experience in eighth grade where um, this is another, I think pretty powerful story about how really these, things can impact people. Um, On Valentine's Day in eighth grade, you know, people pay a dollar for a carnation to give to someone. And you see all the popular people getting 10 or 20 of them. And I got one. I was so excited to get my carnation. (laughs) And I opened the envelope and it says on the envelope, I'm sorry, it says on the note, um, "You you look like the witch from Puff and Stuff, signed the boys in the eighth grade class.
1: Uh, those eighth grade boys are so ruthless
0: yeah and so just really had this extreme need to be pretty and um and then I I just you know going through body comparison and I just kind of walk people through that journey about um getting to where I am today and realizing that you know loving my body as it is and embracing it and actually you know it's really funny because i did get liposuction of my hips thighs and butt back in 1999 i told someone that recently they audibly gasped they're like you had liposuction of your butt who does that
1: <laughs> yeah this was the pre-kardashian era era yes so, yes uh, but to,
0: that's today's response <laughs> they were like horrified yeah. why would you do that but that it, yeah. That's it makes sense. Have <laughs> it makes sense to you
1: then. Yeah. So with all this, with all this negativity, with all this trauma from the sexual assault, the, 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 the divorces, the the uh, not being conscious in those two two instances, uh, this religious mind games, growing up with a narcissistic malignant narcissism in your in your family, um, amongst a probably a whole array of other the, the debt, all the everything that you've had to go through. You've stopped, found a way to still come out of it, and of course, nobody goes untouched. No one goes unscathed, and I'm sure you're still working through it day in and day out. You may do be doing this for the rest of your life, but you haven't. You seem to not have let it define you because you became an attorney, and you've got your two boys. And uh, you also, I believe, have a, a recruiting agency, if I'm not mistaken. I so, do,
0: yeah, I do. Primarily, I do executive search now. Yeah, I don't really practice law anymore.
1: So you've got you've become a successful self-made woman, and uh, and, and you've been able to do it through happiness, forgiveness, empathy, purpose, etc. Talk to us. How how have you been able to get there?
0: Well, um, just through each of these experiences, I you know. I went you know, through the therapy and working through the trauma, I learned, I mean, the biggest, most important thing that I learned was the story that you tell yourself will determine the outcome. And how I, the story I told myself about the rape, as I processed it, it changed. And I went from being a victim to being a survivor. And I went back and found the gift in it, and you know, learned that um, that it was something I could use to serve me now, as opposed to something that you know drained me and sucked the life out of me. Um, similarly, with my father, I've always said, like my greatest gift, my like, thing, like my superpower is intuition. And when somebody asked, asked me, they're like, well, where do you think you got that from? I knew the answer, and the answer was from walking on eggshells in my childhood. I, you just kind of develop a sixth sense of like what's going on around you because you just have to to survive.
1: That's so interesting. that
0: skill was honed in all of what happened in my childhood. And what I realized was that if I was grateful for the gift of intuition, I also had to be grateful for the path that birthed it. And when I had that realization that you cannot decouple those things, I suddenly reached this place of, wow, I once I found gratitude for my past and I reached forgiveness towards my father, um, I, I was like, all that was gone. It was like I was free from it. So a lot of it is just... You know, doing the work and um, and shifting your mindset and uh, just determination to, um, you know, find the opportunity in adversity, learning those lessons and, and embracing them. And again, the most important thing of all is your mindset and the, these split-second choices you make on a daily basis. Um, and the other part of my story, I think, is, is as people have passed away and whatnot in my life, I really looked at their lives. And um, there's a famous story about Warren Buffett where he, you know, he says something about, um, you know, the most important thing is 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 not you know is to learn your failures from other people, and or learn your lessons from other people, not from your own failures. And so, looking at people's lives and seeing, okay. I want to live my life like that person, or I don't want to live my life like that person. Um, really, I learned a lot from a lot of people in my life, and have been very cognizant of learning from others and not. Necessarily, I've gone through enough. I've learned from everybody else.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's really powerful stuff, Carrie. I've got to tell you because what you're saying is is that you just had to shift your mindset and say, okay. All these things happened for me, not necessarily to me. There's a reason they yeah. happened, and they created these abilities to be strong and survive. And now you know how to handle adversity, the pandemic. Whereas, if somebody that has never really had any issues in their lives, the pandemic hits, they curl up into a ball, and now they've spent 18 months being scared of the world and have fallen so far behind. So, 100%. right? I mean, there's 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 a give and take everything has pros and cons give and take and it sounds like that's what you are able to do and if you do that with everything everything that's been severely traumatic or negative in your life and say okay what, dissect this this happened to me now but now I'm able to do this because of that if you're able to find those things it sounds like is what you're saying it allows you to be grateful and it allows you to look at it in a completely different way and release release all that negativity
0: yeah that's huge yeah you know it's If you let that negativity fester or, you know, un, trauma or any of those emotions that they just fester, it, it actually harms your body. And it's something that it's so critical that people deal with and move through. Um, again, it's not to minimize whatever trauma or bad thing that happened, but it's instead to face it head on and, and move through it and then embrace The positive things that come out of it and use it not to drain you but instead to flip it into something that serves you that's one of the reasons i love gavin de becker i wrote about him in my book because he had this horrible childhood and now he's a guy that advises presidents and vips and you know celebrities because of his childhood Mm. i mean it's just such a beautiful story so yeah
1: yeah well, and, and so is yours. And uh, like I said, I wish we had more time, and maybe we'll we'll do a part two at some point. Um, your book is called Blooming. People could find this online, Amazon. Where, where can they get this at? Yeah,
0: on Amazon. It comes out November sixteenth. Blooming: Finding Gifts in the Shit of Life.
1: Ah, beautiful. So the book is coming out in the next couple of weeks. If you're listening to the podcast before it launches, eventually, if uh, we will we will get the link on Amazon and then plug it into the show notes. So you could order the book uh, through the links here as well. Where else? Are you Are you on social media or do you have a website that you want people to go take a look at?
0: Sure. So uh, my social media, my Instagram, uh, Facebook is at Carrington ATX for Austin, Texas, which is where I'm located. Um, and then the book website is, on my, is my author website, which is Carrington-Smith.com.
1: And if you guys are looking for some... Uh, Executive searches or whatever, you can reach out to Carrie because she has her own company. Correct? Yeah. Do you guys, do you guys yes. specialize? Yes. Do you specialize in a certain field?
0: I do. So I primarily do lawyers. Um, oh, okay. Although, so the, the company name is Carrington Legal or CarringtonLegal.com. dot uh, com. Although some of my clients I've been working for long enough, they have me branching out and doing other executive searches for them and. Completely new areas like uh, growth, or I have a, a chief operating officer role right now. So
1: beautiful, uh, beautiful. Yeah, a lot of fun, and uh, a lot of there's a lot of uh, people shifting around these days, in, in every industry. And I assume with uh, Zoom and, and people working from home, especially attorneys realizing they can do work from home, I assume that that's probably had some impact on, on your uh, industry as well.
0: Dramatically, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. actually, it, it's hard for people to believe, but we actually don't have enough lawyers uh, in particular practice areas. <laughs> and and like there has to be a joke in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's at a historic level. This is unseen, what's going on in the legal market right now. The demand yeah. for lawyers, particularly you have like mergers and acquisitions, venture capital, private equity backgrounds. It's, it's historic.
1: Yeah, and, and there's attorneys that are being hired out of state because they're able to work from home now they're being hired by a firm that's maybe, you know, 2,000 miles away.
0: Uh, I'm actively recruiting lawyers from the Bay Area to come to Austin.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. Hey, listen, uh, thank you very much for for sharing at least some of your story, and uh, we will take a look at Blooming when it comes out, and uh, we'll stay in touch.
0: Awesome. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for having me on.